Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and game developers out there. Welcome to the Game Dev on TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB. Today we're going to talk about curiosity and how it's a big importance into the gaming industry and as a game developer in the learning process and even as in the gaming studio side of how are we going to learn new and interesting technologies and how we're going to get out there and create something new with prototypes and all that good stuff. Let's get right into the podcast. I guess we could just jump jump in. Cool, cool. So how can I... Uh, what is very important for game designers when it comes to curiosity? Is it learning a bunch of skills, a bunch of topics? What did you have in mind there? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that important. is the nature of curiosity. Yes. Yeah. Is is the answer to that question A, B, or C? Yes. All of them. Yes. Yeah. Everything is important. <laughs> exactly. All the above. Exactly. So take what Bryant and I did the other day. So, you know, I get the impression that Bryant's, uh, you know, like a, a dev manager of some kind. And there's in learning new technologies. So Visual Studio 2019 comes out and we now have this live share feature. So just randomly we're sitting around and we're like, hey, let's try this out and see what it does. That's the nature of curiosity mm-hmm. is not knowing something and wanting to know it. Yeah. Accepting yeah. failure because you know not everything you're going to do is going to work and being able to learn from those failures and pick out what yeah. works, what doesn't work, what's going to be efficient, what's not going to be efficient. Because even if it works, you might not want to use it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that That's learning true. curve and, and keeping it going forward and, and not being afraid to fail. Exactly. That's the number one thing. Most people are afraid, oh, if, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to lose a ton of money to this. It's like you build small prototypes, so you test it out, so that way you can test a lot of things and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, and nowadays many technologies have free tiers that you can take just to, you know, play around. You don't need to invest a lot of money. You probably need to, need to invest some time, but yeah, you're going to have to invest time anyway. Yeah, you can do like paper prototypes and like set it up, cut out some stuff, use cardboards. Be creative in that. Yeah, well, that's actually, I, I was doing a game the uh, game design course a while back, and, and it was purely pen and paper, and, you know, household object. You weren't actually coding. It was really nice because you, at first, of course, you don't have to code everything you think about, so it's easier to just think about the design. You you're said time, and that's important because within the process, you need to set time aside for these creative endeavors. Because you sit there and you're behind the board and you're coding and you think you're trying to produce something, but to have that time set aside for creative thought and, and being able to fail with that creative thought is, is part of the whole planning process because you need to have that next iteration or that next idea ready to go. Yeah. And I think, the, oh, go ahead, Aaron. No, go ahead, Brian. I have, you, haven't, you haven't spoken yet. Cool. Uh, actually, I was going to say, because we kind of delved into almost like a prototyping from curiosity, but... Um, yeah, I think part of the nice thing, too, is that, you know, when you, when you kind of look at that prototyping, it, it's laying out a plan that's, you know, so you don't let, like, the whole feature creep kind of get into your game, and you kind of keep that prototype to a functional minimal to really, you know, kind of hone in on what the game's going to be. And like everyone said, it's like, you might fail. You might have a concept that you're going to kill based off of, the, the paper alone that you've kind of written on how the game's going to play, it's like, this won't work. And I think a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of time planning can save you a lot more time in the end. Oh, yeah. It also comes down to a little more your world building. 
it's better to learn about like politics, science, history, everything you can take from the world, experience life, and put it into your game, to your world you're building, so it's more realistic, more immersive. It, I, I would agree, and, and you know, I think maybe it was Aaron and I were kind of talking about that at one point. Well, we talking about his, his nature program idea, but at the same time, certain levels of world duplication aren't why people play games, right? We, we all live in the world. We, we play games to escape the world in, in a degree. So you don't want to necessarily mirror certain facets of a world because it doesn't work in gameplay. But you're right. On the other side is that understanding a variety of topics, depending on your game, can be you know important, especially if you're doing like a 4X or multiplayer you know multiplayer i think you kind of get into a little bit of the psychology of the players themselves and understand how your game is going to be played and go from there i mean i have had game ideas in the past where you kind of looked at uh like the utilization people utilize discord for pretty much all voice communication now you know what i had a, a thought at one point where it was like oh you could do like a space shooter and allow players to hack into voice channels to listen to conversations between the other ships that sounds really good but if everyone's just going to be on discord anyways to avoid it they're just going to break your game mechanic anyways and it takes that aspect out of the game it's kind of like upping the gamma so you can see more of the world that is purposely trying to be a little bit hidden from you to create an atmosphere of the game yeah yeah right. i think those kinds of mechanics only work with co-op games and non-competitive games because then right. if the player's gonna cheat... Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, the they're not getting a benefit over other players. They're just ruining their own experience. So who cares? Well, I don't even know if they're ruining their experience. It's just that their experience and their expectation is different from what you set up. And to them, it's perfectly yeah. a valid playing experience. You know, and you see it a lot, I find, in especially like the on online MMO games, different regions of the world play those games different. You know, yeah. Chinese players tend to be very competitive and aggressive towards each other in those games and aggressive towards everybody else. That's just how they play. I don't blame them. It's how the games are designed. It's just how they play. Yeah, you have that with different types of games. Uh, with Dota, for instance, uh, depending on how the current patch is working, different regions of the world uh, do better because they play differently. So, mm -hmm. depending on what mechanic is better at a certain time, maybe Asia uh, wins everything. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, if you follow yeah. the uh, League of Legends championships uh, for the last three years that I watched it, which didn't include the last uh, couple of seasons, uh, it's been the same team won the world championship for three years in a row. It was starting to get a little boring, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, I think that goes back to your conversation you had said earlier about putting time up front planning. You know, and that yeah. your 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 target audience and, and who your game who you're playing, who you're designing that game for is as important to consider up front because again, there's you know, a diverse playing base is going to experience that game in so many different ways. And you just want to make sure that that's in consideration, you know, as, as designers and, and 
in game creators, sometimes we get lost and I want to get something on paper. I want to get something on the screen right away. I want to see things moving and not put into, into that respect of who's going to be playing and what direction your game could actually take. Because if one group picks it up and plays it in a way that maybe the creator doesn't consider, you know, that could be a negative experience for you as the game creator. The team that I work on, to reference what Brian was talking about with the nature simulation and stuff, the team that I work on is, is four people, myself, uh, another guy from Belgium, and then a lady that lives in upstate New York and another lady from Sweden. And the approach that we've been taking towards things is that all of us have very diverse interests. And a lot of the approach that we've been taking to design to design from you know from from the ground up is taking what we like game players and each of us have different gaming backgrounds, but taking the ideas of things that that we enjoyed from games that we have played, we all came together because of one particular community. But then, you know, talking about what those different kinds of things might be like in, in a game experience, and, and the way that we usually approach it is that each of us will write down what we internally, we call a cookie. It's a cookie document <laughs> that basically describes what we envision that that experience to be like and then each of us reviews each other's cookies and we write four things that we are like have to have from our own two things that we don't like and one thing that we do like about each of the other ones and then we get together as a group and we just go through that feedback until we decide which one of these things you know makes sense or makes the most sense for us because ultimately we do have to decide on one thing to do on any given topic right but that gives us a whole lot of 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 diverse input to give us some interesting you know interesting choices and and allows us to kind of explore Know, that inspiration from a lot of different people's curiosities. Now, the lady from Sweden is a gem collector, and she makes uh, you know miniature dioramas. <laughs> you know, the lady from uh, New York is a, you know is an executive you know financial lady. So you know all of the stock market and you know finance and industry type things are very fascinating to her. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know it's it's again when you're talking about curiosity it's it's being able to take those things that you find in the real world and being able to apply them to something that may be interesting for other people to play it's not guaranteed that it's going to be but you know when when you think about you know why do people play games it was it was like bryant was saying it was to escape the world but at the same time we're still trying to simulate things that are realistic to some degree and a lot of the the point of games is to learn about things that you can also kind of reiterate and reapply or repurpose back to reality. If you learn how to be a stock trader in a video game, if the video game is realistically, you know, simulating stock trading, then you're learning how to be better at stock trading in real life, right? True. And also, yeah, it's also not about just recreating the world the way you learn how it, but you, you know how things work in our world. You can then make it, totally different world but with the stuff that you learned with so like oh hey i know how our world works let me make this world but let me tweak it so that it works in a realistic way but it's not the same world it's kind of like the entire point of sci-fi is to be able to imagine the world the way that you want it to be Mm -hmm. (laughs) at least if you're talking about shows like star trek right (laughs) yeah yeah actually funny i watched dune the other night i haven't seen dune in forever you know and that's 
you know, again, I'm kind of, kind of dull from curiosity, but, you know, it's a story kind of of the future of mankind, essentially. Um, you know, when you kind of talk about going off on a tangent of, you know, a, a world or the world, you know, that's the, the epitome of, there you go, right? But, I, but again, like, you know, when you look at curiosity, I think that, you know, if you look at curiosity outside of maybe learning a new programming technology or something and, and our, our level of curiosity is kind of focused on curiosity of how the world works, then you know, there's a lot of practical application within game development. Um, you know, even just certain aspects, because I think when you kind of look at the world with a, a, a different view, it also kind of helps you derive game ideas. You know, you can look at things just a lot different and just in the, in, especially like when you look at the natural world or whatever, you can kind of, you know, knowing your history or, you know, things like that kind of give you ideas for game development as well. Um, there, there's a lot you can just take out of world history and build a plethora of games around that. So there's very fun. <laughs> so there's uh you know we're we're one evening after the first episode of season eight of game of thrones has has aired last night right and uh if you're not aware of this most of the story of the game of thrones was a was inspired by the wars of the roses the lancasters and the yorks of of middle england a lot of the characters in Game of Thrones are directly derived from, you know, historical characters that you can recognize from those events that actually happened in the 13 and 1400s. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly my point, right? Take that history and kind of twist it into something. You know, it, it, it's almost a question, and this topic is not even curiosity as much as creativity and imagination. And those are huge, I think, within obviously with game development because that's what you're you're doing. You're 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 taking something and, and reimagining it into a into a world or a game, you know. And and that's for every topic. I mean, I, you know, various game ideas I've had have just taken very simple things in the world where it's like I can maybe my programming skills isn't there yet, but you know, it's like you could kind of flesh out a full game that you know would attract people. Yeah, and that's the yeah the, that's definitely the value of doing those prototypes, and honestly, you can gain inspiration from just about everything. Absolutely. Video games are are very visual, and so I often find that just looking at the way that artists in Hollywood and Bollywood and other you know, you know New York film, all of those different places, the way that they imagine the worlds is also very inspiring to me for things that I'd like to do. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, you know, The Walking Dead. And so because of that, I really enjoy a lot of survival aspects and kind of the intensity and the, you know, the, the, the suspense of living in a world where you don't necessarily know what's coming at you next. Another interesting thing is that also most games now, they have virtual cameras. So it's like if you learn cinematography, you just like threw yourself out there. We're like, hey, I want to make a game. It's like, oh, I need a cinematographer so I can make these shots and Look nice. True. I, I, you're almost like an art director or something like that. I, I would agree that, you know, like you were saying, a lot of games are visual and, you know, kind of the, the run is that, you know, nowadays games are drawn more than programmed, right? Because a lot of it falls down to the art assets and kind of how they flow together and, 
and produce a game. I mean, obviously there's a lot of still programming that goes into the back end, but the visual representation is really what you're getting at at the end of the day. Yeah, that's part of it. That's definitely a big part of it these days. And like we were talking about last week, sometimes the games focus too much on that kind of stuff. I think a lot of game design can be very easily drawn from from just the simple concepts of how toys are made. Like, you know, why do why do we make certain kinds of puzzles? Like those puzzles where you have the little sliding pieces to like make a picture or put them in order and things like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, a little, yeah, I don't know what they're called. I, I don't know what they're called either, right? They might be called sliding puzzles, but I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah like I think they're called sliding puzzles. Is that with the numbers? <laughs> or what could be yeah, with the numbers or a picture or something like that. Yeah, ultimately, you know, I mean, what, what we're talking about here is that that, you know, can very easily translate into a computer game because ultimately what you're doing is you're dealing with moving a bunch of pieces around in order to make something coherent. And that core concept right there can be applied to a lot of different kinds of things. You're, you're moving pieces around to make something coherent, whether it's a computer program or a physical toy in your hand. Trying to think of some other examples of toys that I have. Like that Lego car. <laughs> that like that, right. Like the Lego car, right? Yeah. Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how does the transmission work? Well, here's how you can build a transmission out of Legos so that you can understand exactly how a transmission works. Yeah. Well, like we were saying earlier, I mean, a lot of, a lot of games can really draw on the pen for concept, right? I mean, you look at yeah. toys, like you are saying, you know, with, with well, the car or the puzzle. I mean, you can just take your traditional toy soldiers and things like that. I mean, that's the basis for a lot of your, your, RTS kind of games and military simulations are basically little army men moving around, essentially. Just, yeah. just variations of how you play. You know, and, and I think, I don't know if it was on a previous con, uh, call or talk, but, you know, if you take some of the more traditional board games that I think of when I was a kid for classic, like, military games, it's kind of like the, uh, the Milton Bradley Axis and Allies, uh, you know, and, and they had a few other games that all you know were military strategy settlers of Catan. settlers of Catan. <laughs> um, i used to play gurps when i was a kid i still have my gurps books i used to play traveler when i was a kid still have all of my traveler books yeah there's there's a lot to be derived from from understanding those systems and, and being fluent and working with them and then being able to translate those into computer games or at least in you know using those systems to inspire you. I was reading an article the other day that was talking about how the original version of Fallout was actually based off of GURPS. <laughs> they uh, eventually didn't go with that system. They developed their special system and all of those other kinds of things. But the original design of the game, they were actually going to build it based off of the generic universal role-playing system. Yeah. And the uh, pen and paper RPGs usually tend to have, especially in terms of stats, pretty straightforward mechanics. They're intuitive. I mean, your strength increases your damage and stuff. So when you look at that and try to translate into a computer game, uh, it's much easier for the player to understand because, okay, my 
the same applies, you know, your strength goes up, your damage goes up. So uh, having a system already implemented and working for decades uh, to base your game on uh, is a lot easier, right? Instead of trying to develop something from scratch. Yeah, definitely. Some of the earliest, you know, role-playing games, if anybody remembers the gold box games from the 80s, these were based off of Dungeons and & Dragons and Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons rules, an existing system that, you know, had already produced a lot of, you know, a lot of solid concepts that, you know, people had been playing for years. And when you think about it, in a lot of ways, the system that ended up being EverQuest was derived largely from the same kinds of concepts in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. It makes it hard to deviate from those concepts too, right? Yeah. Players yeah. have come to expect the same kind of, I'll call it core mechanics, right? Like you were saying, mm-hmm. increasing strength, increasing damage or how much you can carry. And when you deviate from that, the player feedback is really quick that it's like, well, this is a stupid design. <laughs> this doesn't yeah, make any like, sense, right? It's not intuitive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe there's an expectation and that does kind of fall back down to, you know, there, there's certain, you know, call it rules on, on some of this physical world to the digital world translation that there's just this expectation. And you can deviate a bit here and there, but man, if you kind of buck the system, I think that's going to throw people but- for a loop. Yeah, and that's some of the, you, you said about people want to escape the world. And it is true, we all play, we want a diversion. You know, gaming is about diversion and amusement. But we still expect to have some sort of familiarity. If you deviate too far from the norm, the, yeah. we just as humans say, that's too different from, you know, we look for patterns inherently. Mm-hmm. So once you deviate from that, you have to watch. It's a very th- you know, thin line that you fall over and then say, hey, you know, they, they lose interest. But you want them to be amused and you want them to enjoy it, but you want them to be familiar with the system. It makes sense that a person's dexterity would affect their ability to hit a target with a bow yeah. and a person's strength would affect their ability to swing a heavy hammer. Right. Those make sense in, you know, real world terms, which is obviously, you know, why they were designed and codified the way that they were in different game systems. Cause they do derive from things that make sense. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, and players, uh, they want new stuff, but at the same time, they want something derivative. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, maybe I'm not able to go to the gym and work out and become a bodybuilder, but I can be a Tauren warrior in World of Warcraft. Yeah. And, and be that big burly guy that tanks everything, right? <laughs> yeah, and speaking of WoW, you know, uh, players uh, say they want to new type of MMO, something different, but if you make something much different from WoW, people are not going to play it because it's a lot of new stuff to learn. They want to get in there and kind of understand the rules, maybe one thing or the other different. The core mechanics have to kind of be the same. Yeah. The interfaces, too. People get used to oh, yeah. interface design and obviously have a lot of feedback on that, especially if you're kind of used to playing like the MMOs, like a Conan, Ark, you know, those kind of games have kind of set a standard for how they you interact with your character and manage your character. And I think people kind of come to expect a 
similar layout to how the game is played and how they interact with the game. Yeah, you have a very thin window of what you can change and still keep uh, the interest, interest of players. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a big that's a big thing there as well. So I, I'm going to step out of the discussion of games for half a second here and talk about operating systems. Um, so when I purchased my Surface tablet, that was you know when Windows 8 came out, and the first time I used Windows 8 was on a Surface tablet, and as far as that experience was concerned, it made perfect sense. Everything about the operating system made perfect sense. However, when you compared Windows 7 to Windows 8, they were completely different experiences. And it was way too jarring for Microsoft to make a shift from our operating system, you know, with a start button to now the entire operating system is rewritten and designed to use on a tablet. Well, what happened to Windows 7? Right, because this is like this is these are totally different experiences, and you know that large jump of innovation. There were a lot of really interesting innovations in there, and I've noted over the last ten years or so that a lot of those innovations have been integrated into other mobile phones and other operating systems and things like that, but done in small iterative steps. So you can make a deviation from you know the standard, as it were. But you can't deviate that much or else people just won't do it. <laughs> they just won't be happy about it. It's like you can't, you know, you can't teach me how to use a yo-yo and then expect me to throw a Frisbee, right? Yeah, you end up with a very small community of very dedicated players, but that's not enough to make yeah, it just, a huge it, game. It comes down to kind of understanding the user base a little bit at the end of the day, too. Yeah. You know, when... You know, I, I come from an environment where, you know, in the day job thing, you know, we swap out softwares and replace, you know, end user software packages over the years. I'm sure all of us have kind of experienced that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in my hotel days, we, we replaced the property management system. And they went from a, you know, DOS kind of screenish green screen app. Mm -hmm. You would hit tab and enter to move through different screens. Right. Yep. Go and then key numbers and press enter to get to different menus. Right. Yep. You know, and, and, and they the the end users, the res reservationists and stuff, they can fly through that system to book your reservation. Yep. We replaced it with the latest and greatest Windows version of it. And now you have to, you know, take your hand off the keyboard to get the mouse to change to a different screen because they didn't give it a hot key. Right. So it totally slowed down the process of making a reservation. And, you know, to me, it was just kind of an oversight for them. They didn't realize how their end users had learned to use that product and interact with it for efficiency. It's like, we almost have to have another reservation agent just to handle <laughs> the workload when you have a reservation department with maybe 10 people and you're increasing it by 10, 20% to handle a change in software. That's substantial. Yeah, just some of that is poor. Yeah, some of that is is setting expectations, and some of it is also, you know, the, the the value proposition, right? So, to a business operator, switching to this more advanced system that has these graphics and visuals gives them more feedback about what the system is doing. They can, you know, see those things graphically, and 
you know, that may be more interesting to them, but yeah, to the, to that end operator, they went from, I can do this in 20 keystrokes to now I have to move my hand to my mouse and find a new window. And I have to learn this whole new UI and everything else. Those, those kinds of, so I implement the ERP systems professionally and I see that happen all the time. Like the end users are like, I don't want to use this new system. It's not as good as the old one. Well, yeah. it's actually a lot better, but <laughs> it's also but very different and it changes how you need to do your job. Yeah, but yeah, at the same time... resistance to that. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, the but, but at the so same you time... You can't make huge changes is ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, but when they get new, new personnel, the <laughs> new interface is going to be much more intuitive. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I you have this that. balance. <laughs> You guys have heard of the, uh, uh, what is it, the, the company that makes the, uh, they're like inspirational posters, but demotivators? Have you heard of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, there was one of them that was along the lines of, you know, the easiest way to solve problems with your workforce is fire all the complainers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right, you know. One of the great thing about being curious about things is like new technology that comes out you start to play around with things like how does this work what can i build with this like they have this new uh with the unreal 4.22 i know they the league of legends the k-pop people they were able to create this like live cgi characters within the uh online live show so it looked all like real and together and seamlessly but it was like half the people couldn't see it that were there and have to see it online. But it's like the technology's improving so much. It's like, hey, how does this work? And how does that work? And how can we build this? And maybe we make a game out of this. Just being curious about new stuff that comes out. I, I think curious when you're talking about new technology, to me, there could be a risk. And I know like, I think last week you guys touched on AR and VR. And while I think that those technologies are great and they have huge potential, if you're so curious and start focusing on the technologies that aren't quite there yet, you also get caught up in trying to be in the forefront of something that's really not even ready for business yet. You know, and, and, and when I look at game design, back to that kind of AR, VR experience, they're just kind of, AR I think is more there than VR is. Yeah, VR yeah. is still, you know, the, the technology has this huge capability, but it's like, it still has a lot to come too. Before yeah. I, as a game de- developer, would say, I'm going to head down the VR route. Like, great, I don't have 20 customers. Uh, it, that, that having new, being, curio- uh, being curious about new technology is prohibitive about the cost, but some of that stuff is so expensive to get oh, in yeah. and play with. And that's kind of with your VR. You know, the technology and the desire to do VR, just, it's, it's cost prohibitive. People can't get into it to play. You know, you can yeah. create this great game, but you know, yeah. you can't buy the headsets and the headsets change because yeah. there is no standard yet. So, you know, sometimes with that curiosity with new hardware, people don't do it because they can't afford it. Yeah, you know? the, the HoloLens dev kit is five grand and the yeah, individual exactly. is just not going to do that. <laughs> I got the chance to work with it because the business that I work for bought one. Yeah. Well, and even if you have it, then what about the training? You know, you buy mm-hmm. this, these expensive headsets, but then... To train, you need another thousand, two thousand dollars, you know. And corporate America can do that, but your, you know, indie game dev, t- you know, they just can't do it. Well, if you look at the Hololens, for example, the dev kit's five grand. They don't even—I don't think they have an end user kit yet. No. Like, well, that doesn't—that doesn't do me any good because I don't need 
a game player to buy a dev kit. It's it's way overkill. They're not developing a thing, you know. They're 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 the recipients of it on their end, and that's it. They need the. I, I always feel when I look at those products, sub two hundred dollar product to yeah. be, you know, acceptable. Well, I also consider that the HoloLens has consider that the HoloLens has six cameras on it and two infrared radar devices. That's why it's five grand. No, and I get it. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I understand its expense. I guess at the end of the day, it needs to be. If I look at it from a gaming aspect, I need to treat it almost like you would treat an Xbox, right? Microsoft sells essentially Xbox at cost or at a loss at times. Yeah. Because they know that they're going to make the money off the game licensing. Yeah. It was and a subscription and others. Yeah. You know? And with VR, it, to me, it almost has to be the same thing. It's like to get that cost down, that manufacturer needs to be willing to say, we're going to take a loss, but we want a cut of revenue from the games that you sell to produce it, which becomes a whole different ugly mess in the end of the day, I'm sure. But if that helps subsidize the cost of the device, then... Well, you, you touched on it when talking about the HoloLens is that it's about who it's for, right? right? So in truth, Microsoft has never intended the HoloLens to really be an end user thing. You know, they're working on that 40 billion dollar deal with the pentagon you know the pentagram or pentagon (laughs) pentagram (laughs) the pentagon yeah and i mean you know they've released a newer version of the dev kit which is a little cheaper it's like three grand now but you know they're working on versions of it that you know can be used for for police forces facial recognition other kinds of things integrated into combat helmets and things like that that make sense for the device it was never you know their their big demo for gamers was that they showed a minecraft world sitting on a coffee table and that was cool but that's not what the thing is meant to do and you're not going to get you know 10 year old kids that play minecraft to buy an ar headset for three thousand dollars no you're absolutely right and that's i think the world had a different view right they saw Oculus out there in the HTC Vive that are much cheaper, and they thought, well, this is Microsoft's direct competitive product to those products. <laughs> right. It's like, well, it's not. You, and they're not. You thought it was, but it really isn't. What about you know, if, oh. No, okay, What about if it's like a long-term thing? So instead of more making a business now being profitable, it's more of the learning aspect of VR, so that way later down the road when it does become something big, you understand how it works. I think when I look at it from curiosity, I'm still kind of inclined to sit on the sidelines a bit because I still think that that technology has a lot of maturing to do. And I guess, you know, if I was in a position where like Robert is where he can kind of integrate that already and start using it and developing on a VR platform or an AR platform, then it makes sense. But if it's not, I don't want to say from a business standpoint, but at the end of the day, time is money for all of us, right? We all have better things we can be doing. Well, not necessarily better, but you know what I mean? You know, Mm -hmm. we all have things we, we, we give up or spend our time on that, hopefully makes us money or or some other value to it where if i'm going to focus on game development you know 
I can't sit there and say, oh, you know, just wait till VR is ready and, and play around with it. No, get something out there. Get something small out there. Put small games out there just to get the coding because a lot of the coding is going to be the same. The, the AR and the VR aspect is going to be the visual representation. But if your core game mechanic sucks, it's going to suck in VR too. Yeah, what you're talking about there is the killer app. And that's really what we have yet to see is is somebody that's developed the killer app that you know everybody has to have a VR headset. Like Beat Saber yeah. is a really good example of a killer app for virtual reality, as I understand it, right? People love playing Guitar Hero and Beat Saber. Right. And it works really well in virtual reality. The the thing is that, you know, getting this to the conversation about curiosity is that it takes a bunch of curious people just playing around with what's possible there. Like you're saying, you know, trying different kinds of things out and, you know, building those, you know, those interactions, figuring out what does work. When I was at the Mixed Reality Partner Program at Microsoft last year, that was one of the things that they talked about in the introductory keynote was, you know, one of the challenges in virtual reality is getting the interaction right because people expect to be able to reach their hand out and grab something and pick it up. But that kind of, you know, that level of interaction and, you know, the interactability of the, of the you know, you need a glove that can understand your physical positions of all of your fingers to be able to do something like that. And if you've just got the rings or whatever, how do you make that interact with something in a natural way? So it takes a long time to build that kind of stuff. And that's where curiosity, you know, really, really can step in because, you know, you've got to be experimental and try different kinds of things until eventually you find something that works. Eventually someone will find that killer app for AR or VR or, you know, any any kind of game, and once you get there, then hey, you know, we've got this new fun experience. You see it, you know, in the movement from you know survival games to battle royale games to all of these different kinds of things. We find something that's interesting, and you know, we all enjoy it for a while, right? <laughs> and then move yeah. on to the next big thing. Well, our our games that we develop today in is based off of years and years of studies of where the eyes, you know, how humans. And uh, react. What colors do we like? Where do we look? Mm -hmm. All that stuff we're building off of platforms that have been studied for years. VR takes us into a new realm. And your idea of a killer app, it's difficult. You need that curiosity because you need to overcome a new threshold of how do we look? How do you get somebody's attention in, in 360 degrees? You know, you have all these new areas of human interest and of, of, of human conquering how we look and how we feel how do you cross that bounds and you need that curiosity and be able to fail because it's not going to work you know they're trying to do it in news use vr for news you know and some of the problem they're finding is how do you gain people's attention you know you want to have your actor over here yet there's a bang over to the left you know how do you how do you overcome that stuff so you just keep needing to play until you find that that killer killer app that you're talking about someone's going to stumble on it yeah and then everyone's going to capitalize off of it right yeah i mean i, I understand kind of that integration of new technology it's so funny because you actually bring up the news and the first thing that kind of thought to me was you know in the last few years it seemed like all of the major news networks had moved to those smart displays in their their newsrooms and they still fumble trying to get these smart displays to draw lines and show the right pictures. And it's kind of like, 
sometimes when it comes to it, the real question is, should they integrate the technology? Is there really <laughs> a practical aspect for the news to be able to just tap on a screen and draw a circle around a house that they're talking about? I can pretty much figure it out. That's why there's a picture of a house there. Uh, you know, I don't need you when you have a picture of traffic that's all red for you to draw your finger on the map where the red is. Uh, maybe for the visually impaired. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's just like we never stepped back and thought of should we be doing it? <laughs> Shouldn't we do this? Yeah. Or do we just set the newsroom back? You know, with giving them crap technology from the the AVID system that they've been using that have worked very well for them. But uh, you're right. You do got to play with that technology. Yeah, just need somebody who's curious enough to figure out what might work. <laughs> so yeah. you can't, you can't, you know, hold them. You can't hold their feet to the fire for trying, at least. I, I, I guess I can't hold their feet to the fire. I, I hold their feet to the fire when they all jump on the failed bandwagon. When I look at every news <laughs> network and they all play with those stupid screens and they can't use them. <laughs> What made you watch the other news network and think, yeah, something we need to do? <laughs> we can look like we fumble just as much as they do. <laughs> they just kind of lose. Maybe you know. That's your standard, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I, yeah. I, I understand them in a learning environment. You know, I understand yeah. why schools want the smart boards. It makes sense. It's a television. It's a interaction with the computer. They need to bring technology into the schools. Honestly, the average elementary school teacher is probably more adapt at using those screens than the news people who have it in front of them. You know, when we got our new office at work, it actually had a smart display. And we took it out because we didn't really have a practical use for it. Hmm. We were just going to literally put the occasional PowerPoint or Excel file on that television. And they're like, well, we could use a smart display. And my company has, you know, they have money to spend on things. If they wanted the toy, they could have you know, spend it on it. But it just wasn't practical for them to go spend 10 grand to make this screen work that, you know, that television in that room gets used once or twice a week. You know, it's like, why would we have invested in a smart display that we could do cool things with that we'll never do cool things with? So we couldn't get any publishers to give us money, even though we had a team of like 24, like highly experienced game designers from like blockbusters, like Half-Life and Unreal and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, all of the investors were really sketch at that time. But the whole entire thing about Traveler was that it was not a combat-based game. Com you know, Traveler is a commerce and exploration game. And yep. that was the kind of game that we were trying to create was, you know, you, know, you, you could kind of think of, like, EVE without combat. <laughs> if you've yeah. ever played EVE. No. no I have, yeah, briefly. I, I, it, it's similar in concept. And the only reason I ever played it a little bit was I liked Privateer. Back yeah, yeah, yeah. The but Chris, that had Chris, what's office. his name? Game, yeah. Uh, Wing Commander or spinoff. Yeah, his name was Chris something. Yeah, he worked for Origin yeah. back then. I don't remember his last name. No, you know, you're funny because you bring up a, a you know a, 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 a the Traveler game. It's like when you talk about board based games. I mean, it's funny because like, if, especially if you're just learning to, to do game development, some of those older board games if you can kind of find the rules gives you a great starting point on oh yeah a game because you know a lot of these games it's to develop and tweak point value systems there's a lot of work that goes into that process oh yeah 
You know, we had a design dog that was like an inch and a half thick, and like right. a quarter of it was just the combat system mechanics. Right, exactly. I mean, it's huge, and you know, you can go to like an AD and D rule set, and at yeah. least have a framework that's been kind of vetted. It's like yeah. building a virtual economy. You can't build a, 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 a business sim game and just think you're going to whip that out. It's like <laughs> Right. You have to have not. business people who know how to do that stuff right. to like inspire the actual gameplay. Right. Yeah. And to make it realistic. You know, right. not everything has to not. And, and realistic is not the right word because you're simulating a game in five a day in five minutes. But yeah. to make virtual economies flow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you see it time and time again in even like existing like MMO games where, you know, they haven't figured out that mechanic either. So they've introduced things like <laughs> things for you to spend your gold on. Right. They're literally just wastes of money to pull resources out of the environment because yeah. they have no real way of consuming anything that gets traded back and forth. Right. You know, so you can convert it to something different and have a magic hat that does nothing, but it makes your character different, but it pulled out 20,000 gold pieces from the world. <laughs> right. This is this is something that Raf Koster actually blogs about quite a bit. Um, he was the original designer of the Unreal, or uh, not Unreal, but uh, Ultima Online. Okay. And he then worked on Star Wars Galaxies. And a huge amount of the stuff that he focused on was exactly that, economies and how to, you know, how to properly build an economy that, that doesn't get stagnant. Some of, the, some of the game design aspects that he put into it were like limited resources, limited availability, limited time frame. They would move you know, resources from one place to another so that you'd have to change you know, how the trading routes worked and everything else. The, and he, you know, blogged about it extensively because, you know, that's that's you know, what you said is exactly right on the, you know, hit the nail on the head. It's it's difficult to do game economies because, I, honestly, I think the biggest challenge is just that ultimately, it's a persistent state world, and you know, you've got thousands of people constantly generating random coinage and resources right. right exactly and so you have to have some way to to drain those out of the economy to to create yeah. some kind of consumable nature because that's really you know most of the economy is driven off of consumable goods so you know if you're not if you're not draining you know somebody gets this great item and then yeah you know it's traded among you know a dozen different people for 15 years you know, there's no drain there right yeah no, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know how much any, either you play game, but like I've been playing Atlas recently, which is like a spinoff of Ark with pirates, basically. Mm. And, and they've been suffering with their economy. And it's an EA game. I mean, it's been around since basically Christmas. Yeah, I have um, a few friends that were playing it. it. It's a fun game, fun genre. You know, everyone wants to be able to build a ship and sail around and uh, shoot each other with cannons. But the developers are trying to make that economy kind of exist in there and, and and change the gameplay and that's becoming really hard right so certain resources just aren't available on every island so it forces you to go around and mm -hmm. potentially trade but then everyone just fights each other and <laughs> which is fine but there's no consequence in a game to die right other than you might lose your your guns and your stuff like that which you can probably whip out in three seconds and replace anyway so there's really no <laughs> So now it's interesting you brought that up about death, 
because that was an argument that me and Elliot had for quite a while. We were the two main designers for Dark Nebula, and and we went back and forth about death penalties for a long time. He was of the you know the casual gameplay perspective, like if you die, you shouldn't lose anything. You should just respawn somewhere safe. And I was like, no, screw that. If you die, you should you should lose all your crap. You should need to go back there. People should be able to take whatever they find on you. And and the argument was essentially on my side was like, and the way that we counterbalance that is that we don't make any items really all that important in the game at all. Right. So if you die and you lose your backpack with ammo in it, okay, no problem. Just make another backpack with ammo and somebody else may luckily find your backpack full of ammo. Right. It, It works to an extent. To an extent. Yep. I, I think when when things are so cheap to produce, then if no one cares about dying, it changes the <laughs> experience because no one cares about dying. Yeah. So, like in well, in- I mean, I don't. You know, we we <laughs> we talked about that. You know, we, we didn't want to make the point was that we we didn't want death to be painful, but we wanted it to be painful enough that you wanted to avoid it. So if you died and lose lost all of your stuff, you then had to go and recreate all of those things, right? It, which we didn't want to be super difficult, but at the same time, not. you know, you still it have to do it. Play right. I yeah, mean, there's a balance to it, but. Yeah. Like, like when I think of Atlas is, you know, in some of that's player balancing and, and stat balancing and stuff. But, you know, you players can do a lot of damage just by themselves. One mm-hmm. player can really wreck a base if they wanted to. <laughs> you know, probably the same in Rust and Ark is the same way. You know, one one motivated individual can really screw up a clan if they really oh, felt I'd- like totally wrecked somebody's house in fallout 76 the other day because i wanted to experiment with with basically with griefing somebody right and i was able to really easily grief them and then kill myself with my alt and like log off the guy sent me a message said punk and i was just like yeah sorry you were the victim of my experiments you know it won't happen again but at the same time it's like you know that's it, it demonstrated to me exactly how easy it was to grief people in that game which was right kind of annoyed me more than anything and I think because you don't experience any real repercussions from it, you yeah. don't care if you die 20 times in the process of griefing that person. Yeah, You're just exactly. going to keep going back and, and banging into them until you're bored. Yep. It, it creates a different mechanic that I don't think was intended. Yeah. So when I look at like, you know, some, like I think our, our Atlas is kind of toying with if you die, you actually kind of, t- they're, they're working on the concept of, your player has a lifespan. You know, they're looking at like a player lifespan. Like my character at one point before they wiped the server was like, I was an 87 year old pirate. Um, but as you get older, you take permanent stat, you know, declines. Did you get the ability to like have legacy characters that were like generational inheritance and stuff? Yes. They're supposed to implement that. They hadn't done that yet, but uh, that's the goal, right? Yeah. You were supposed to have, you know, now I understand where Ben was getting all of those ideas from because he played Atlas for a while and he came back and he's like, we definitely need to do blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, so I mean, at the end of the day, that was kind of the, the envision. But then they also, I think, toyed with the idea of to, to prevent the griefers from just, you know, running up on a base and dying and dying is that mm. every time you died, you kind of took a stat damage as well that would linger you know, like yesterday I was playing with a guy and we, we just screw around. We're not really into the whole 
PvP aspect of the game, even though we're on a PvP server, and they added a guillotine to the game. So we're like, oh, <laughs> put me in the guillotine, cut my head off. As soon as you cut my head off, it's like, oh, you've been executed. You're taking a 24-hour penalty on stuff. And I'm like, aw. <laughs> we were just screwing around. It was my own teammate who executed me. That's not cool. <laughs> but, hey, it's all fun. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you kind of got to, you know, and those are those are game mechanics that you kind of got to get curious about, back to the curiosity yeah. standpoint, right? You kind of got to push that envelope and change things up a little bit and see what resonates, what sticks, what doesn't work. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, you know, you don't have to say curiosity isn't limited to the physical world. It's, you know, gameplay mechanics too. Yeah, and, you know, exactly what you're saying right there, you know, the, that was one of the reasons why Sony made Landmark the way that they did was that they intended it to be a place for them to experiment with their different, you know, gameplay ideas. They, they used it as almost like a game just to prototype their other games. Yeah, I, I would imagine, because who really wants to have a set of glasses? <laughs> they were being that needed, they needed batteries. You needed to put batteries in them and charge <laughs> them. And- yeah, so you got to charge your TV. I mean, it, it just kind of comes out. You know, it, it's the same thing with Facebook. And, and, and Facebook has money to blow too, right? But they, they, you know, they kind of have that view for Oculus where it's like we're going to get rid of the television, the, the computer monitors. You're just going to wear glasses instead of having a, a desktop anymore. And, you know, you just put these on. It's like it, it sounds really good on paper for their profit margins. But at the end of the day, I don't think people want to put on a headset every time they sit in front of a computer to use a computer. It just doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. at one point, the thought was with technology, is like, oh, we can start making micro displays and putting them on contact lenses. And you can just put the display overlay on your eyes. You know, honestly, I don't think that augmented reality will really take hold until that is the level that the technology is at, that you can put a contact lens in. And overlay the actual world with things. I yeah, think day to day, maybe. If you want to put a microchip on your eyeball, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm already half cyborg because I've got like a you know permanent <laughs> catheter catheter installed in my chest for my you know previous cancer treatment. Uh, I, I'm I'm okay with having a you know a cybernetic eye replaced at some point. <laughs> Why not? Right? I'm not kidding. I think that that would be really cool, being able to perceive the world in ways that you can't perceive with your natural eyes. Like until you, you have to reboot see your eyeball. infrared <laughs> until you got to reboot your eyeball. <laughs> Hold on, I can't see it. <laughs> Give I'm me a second. Yeah, I need to I need to punch myself in the face a couple of times because yeah, yeah. that's the reset button. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see anything. I forgot to charge my eyes. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's, it's like the smartwatches. I I don't have a smartwatch. I don't know if any of you guys do, but no. while the concept makes sense, I don't want to recharge my watch every night. You know, and I'm yeah. probably one of the few people that just wears a regular watch anymore. But it's like I, I don't want to have to charge it. You know, it's I funny, have quite a few friends funny. that wear regular watches, but they do it all entirely for fashion. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it's funny because I talk to a friend who has a smartwatch. He's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I wear it all day, but I got to charge it every night, and if. If I forget to charge it, my watch turns off on me like mid morning. I mean, then you're just kind of carrying around a paperweight with you. <laughs> like, when's the last time I charged my watch? Oh, it's a year and a half old, and I never had to charge it or replace the battery yet. You know, I wear it partially, as you said, for fashion, and and I don't wear a smartwatch on the other side because I don't want to be that tied to my technology. You know, I, you need to be able to put some of that stuff down. Else, you want to mention about curiosity? 
Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything we've mentioned about curiosity? No, <laughs> you want to mention for this discussion we, something else? Well, no, we took, it is. We just <laughs> talked about curiosity. Every, I mean, every topic ends yeah. up getting off into some sort of curiosity. No, you know, back to curiosity. Though, yeah. <laughs> you do have to have a very broad view of curiosity. And yeah. I think it's not as much curiosity. It, it's more... I, I guess I wouldn't really classify it as curiosity as much as it is. I mean, it is, but it's, it's understanding how things work and, and not necessarily from a curiosity standpoint, but how do you take existing world things and translate those into the digital world? Right. And, and digitize something, you know, uh, trying to think of a good example, and for some reason, a car engine comes to mind. Even though translating that into, although translating that into the digital world, it is a good example. If you're making a, a racing game or something, to understand how the wheels work and how they really impact the performance of a car. If you're making a racing game where your car is highly customizable, you know, understanding how you make tweaks and, and adjustments to the vehicle impact your gameplay or impact how the player interacts with the game you know people's driving styles are different so they might tune their car to better fit them and if you're trying to kind of model that that's kind of where a certain level of curiosity and 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 how things work come into play business simulations and you know stuff like that i, I think i was playing project high rise recently and well it's a neat little kind of tower building game you know, it, it's kind of that same model. They, they they kind of create an aspect where, you know, the, depending on the various piece of kind of building office you put in, they have different expectations of services. And some of that's kind of modeling the business world. I think we, we did get off a little bit off a tangent, but... You know, yeah. when does our when have our topics ever really stayed on point? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. we're curious. It's hard. Yeah, it's exactly. We're, we're curious. We're curious. Well, exactly. <laughs> right. No, it is. I mean, we we could go on and on about curiosity and kind of that we'll that part idea. too. It, well, <laughs> in general, I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's it depends on what your end goal is. If you have a game concept, <laughs> in mind, you know. <laughs> yep. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we got for today. Thanks, Thanks for joining KB. us, guys. <laughs>